Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Journey through the book of Revelation. And uh, so far, we've journeyed and made it to the last few verses of chapter 11 and uh, halfway through the book. So tonight, we're going to pick up there in verse 14 and read through 19. Chapter 11, the book of Revelation. Trust you is able to pick up a, a lesson study guide, take a few notes. We got uh, three main points throughout the lesson this evening. Would love for you to just join us as we uh, make our way through it, all right? Before you get too comfortable, let's stand and let's read the text. Praise the Lord. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14 is where we're going to start. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign for a few months, for a few years, for a decade. No. If your Bible says that, you need to get you a new one. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, now remember, who's this represent? Four and twenty elders. Thank you, Brother Greg. Four and twenty elders represent the church which sat before God on their seats. It's getting powerful in heaven. They couldn't stay in their seats. Look what they do. They fall upon their faces and worship God. That's what the church is doing. And they're saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy uh, great power and hast reigned. That means ruled. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come. See, the nations that were angry, that's just a side note. But God's wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants and prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Father, thank you once again for the passage we come to tonight in the book of Revelation. Lord, so far you have been with us on this journey. I pray you will continue to open this passage to us. Let us, Lord, be able to realize what you are displaying for us in this important passage, in this great book of revelation. Trust you, Lord, to minister and just take and anoint my feeble words. In Jesus' name we ask all God's children say amen. Amen. 
God bless you. You can be seated. God's reign revealed. Some time ago, an issue of World Magazine carried a brief article on the tight security measures used in the transference of information from one location to another. After spending decades locked away in a secret cabinet with multiple locks inside a triple-locked vault, company officials carefully removed a yellowing piece of paper and transferred it to an undisclosed location. The entire process was carefully guarded. Security was on high alert and extremely tight. Anybody want to know what that yellowing piece of paper was? What's that? Big Mac sauce? Hey, you're not far off. You're not far off. That yellowing piece of paper dates back to 1940, and the handwriting on it is by its corporate founder, his name Harlan Sanders. So she was in the vicinity in the food chain area. Company he founded was Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the yellowing piece of paper bearing his signature is in his own handwriting. They feel it's the only copy of a secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices, which allegedly holds the key to KFC's worldwide success. Corporate executives needed to consult the original recipe one more time because they were preparing to release a new line of chicken strips. So this consultation prompted the need for heightened security so following that top-level, top-secret meeting, that piece of paper was locked away again in a small safe, handcuffed to a guard who got into an armored vehicle and took him and the recipe to an undisclosed location where the secret lies safely hidden away once again. Praise God. I guess that's proof that corporate theft is a real problem. But it's also proof that we take our chicken seriously. Right? KFC can argue that they made more than $2.5 billion last year, so their recipe is worth keeping secret. That's the way it is today, though, isn't it? We do whatever it takes to keep our wealth and our worth top secret. We keep our valuables under lock and key. Can you imagine now, KFC, let's say, or Apple, General Motors, Wall Street, can you imagine them announcing and saying, we're going to show you the recipe for our success. We're going to give everybody photocopies. Hmm? We're also going to tell you what, what projects we're working on in the future. We're going to open up all of our trade secrets. Could you imagine that happening? No. Not in a million years, right? Well, how many know for those who care enough to look, 
God is doing that in the book of Revelation. He is opening the vault of heaven, right? He is showing us the future in a unique way. And for those who might be feeling a little overwhelmed by all the strangeness of this book, the the weird animals and the flying locust creatures that we've talked about, the trumpets, the seals, the horsemen, the blood, and the pestilence and mysterious numbers and markings. It's now that our Lord stops for a brief moment at exactly the halfway point of this revelation, and He gives us a crystal clear look at the future of the world. Now, corporate executives might lock away a chicken recipe hide away trade secrets, but God opens the vault and reveals future secrets for anyone who wants to see. Praise God. I'm, I'm glad he did that. And so as we return now to chapter 11, I want us to understand that often in the book of Revelation, we are given the big picture in a few verses, followed by close-up snapshots that focus on the details. So recently, we've been looking at another, last, last uh, Wednesday, we called it parenthetical section in the book of Revelation, after observing the hardness of the heart uh, of sinners who refused to repent after the horror of the first and second woes, which was, upon, uh, which was also the fifth and sixth trumpet. One had to wonder, like John perhaps did, is preaching the gospel really worth it? Because it's not looking like anyone's getting the message. John, no doubt, was tempted to think if the truth I preach is only going to get me in further trouble and they're not going to believe anyway, why should I bother? So chapter 10, and then the first 13 verses of chapter 11 answer that question. Because remember, the last verse of chapter 10, the, the Spirit of the Lord told John, you got to prophesy again. Say that with me, prophesy again, okay? Because why? We don't want any blood on our hands. We don't want anybody's blood on our hands. And so there's this terrible judgment coming upon this world and upon sinners. Whether they listen or not, guess what? We are told to warn them. Yeah? Whether they listen or not. We're told to warn them. On the other hand, we continue proclaiming the truth because we serve a God who has the ability to save even the most unthinkable people, right? Through the preaching of the simple gospel. And we saw last week how that in chapter 11, God used two faithful witnesses. We called them the dynamic duo, okay? To bring about full-scale salvation to a city that was so evil that it was actually called, in the book of Revelation, Sodom and Egypt. It was a city so dangerous that Christ himself warned believers to flee. A city that uh, has a history of already having killed the Son of God. It was a city where Satan himself currently sets as his center of worship. We saw God save that city through his two faithful witnesses and their death, and subsequent resurrection. And so we learn that despite what it looks like, 
we should remain faithful to live and preach the gospel because sinners must hear and because we don't know what, it, what God is actually accomplishing. How many know he works behind the scenes? Amen. And so now that parenthetical section is closed, okay? And we're back on schedule, although it'll be a very brief schedule before we uh, go quickly into another interlude. We read in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is quickly coming. This verse flows seamlessly from the end of Revelation 9. That second woe was the 200 million strong demonic uh, death army that killed one-third of the earth's population. That woe is over. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So we're back now into the natural chronological flow. But this flow isn't going to last long because chapters 12 through 14 are yet another parenthetical section. Okay, but for this evening, we're back on track precisely with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet represents that uh, the coming and dreaded third woe. And now it's upon us here in the text. But before we see the details of the third woe, we are first given an important and we could call it highly anticipated announcement. It is the announcement of the reign of Christ. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to uh, maybe take three notes here, main notes, major notes, three notes, whatever you want to call them. Number one, here's the first note, don't miss it. The declaration of Christ's reign. All right, so here we have the sounding of the seventh and final trumpet, and this trumpet is a significant one. One of the things we learned in our most recent parenthetical section is that this trumpet would mark the end. It's stated in Revelation 10, 5 through 7. At this trumpet, God's patience will have fully run its course. All right? In chapter 10, verse 5, the angel declares, there should be time no longer. We would say it like this, no more delay. No more delay. Everything that God promised in the Old Testament to the prophets will finally come to its full fruition at the sounding of this seventh trumpet. When this seventh trumpet sounds... We know it's the end, and that is why before we have a description of the details, we have this much-anticipated announcement. Verse 15, there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms, of this, excuse me, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Now, with the announcement of this final judgment, also comes the announcement of the reign of Christ. What we see occurring here, notice this is on your uh, lesson guide, what we see occurring here is the transfer of power. Yes, it is true that God has always been and always will be sovereign. He has never lost control in even the slightest measure. Right, church? However, starting way back in the garden, we saw the usurper 
show up and corrupt creation, right? God had created everything perfect. God had declared everything good. Okay, however, the enemy deceived Eve, tempted Adam, who transgressed God's command, and instantly this world fell under the power of the evil one. That's why throughout the New Testament we have we have all different kinds of titles for Satan. You know that? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world. Little g. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. John 12.31 calls him the ruler of this world. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Revelation 2.13 taught us that Pergamum, remember that? The church of Pergamum? Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. That's what the text said. So in short, while God is sovereign over all things, church, we do understand that Satan is the usurper and deceiver who has set up his throne on earth And currently, we don't see the physical kingdom of Christ here, do we? We only see the kingdom of Satan, right? This is also why Satan was able to offer this worldly kingdom to Christ during Christ's temptation. Remember in the Gospels, in Matthew, for example, 4, 8 through 9, Satan shows Christ the world's kingdom and tells Christ, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Satan made that offer because he is in fact the God of this world. And the world is lying under his power. Furthermore, the kingdom of this world is a kingdom that totally opposes God. The psalmist hit the nail on the head back in Psalm chapter 2. He said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? He said, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. See, this continues to be the cry of our culture even today. There is no intent in our culture in bowing in submission to God. There is no interest in following the commandments. They're removing them, right? The world is in a hurry to throw off God in every possible way. Paul carefully described this rebellion in Romans chapter 1. For example, in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We are hit with the reality that man does know God. It is just they don't like the truth about God that they know. So what did Paul say they do? They suppress it. Okay? God has made himself evident... They don't have to read the Bible. You can know God through creation. God has made himself evident through creation, and yet man has resisted that revelation at every turn. And Paul says that they changed, really in the text it means exchanged, okay, the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. 
Instead of a holy God, the world wants religion because they can easily craft religion to fit their own desires, much like an idol. And they exchange divine glory for an earthly image. And verse 25 of this same chapter says, they change the truth of God into a lie, worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator. And so they also go on down, verse 26, they exchange the truth for a lie. Okay, uh, where it says, for this cause God gave them unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature or unnatural. Haven't we seen that today? See, they've exchanged the natural for the unnatural, rejecting God's intention for humanity. And in verse 26, it shows us and leads us to uh, verse 28 that says this proper Everything proper has now become improper. And so we get the idea that the kingdom of this world, how many know it's antichrist at every turn? And to make things worse, Paul said in Romans 1.32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but notice this, have pleasure in them that do them. Isn't that our entertainment industry today? Not only is it participation in things which God calls evil, but it's approving of those who do it. That's where we've come. It is the kingdom of this world, and it hates God, hates Christ, and emphatically resists any rule that he might have over them. And the world in which we live is in utter rebellion against Christ. We do not see Christ's kingdom reigning upon earth right now. The kingdom we see is in direct opposition of Christ's kingdom. And so God has clearly drawn the battle lines, hasn't he? For example, James 4.4, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So these two kingdoms have nothing in common. And God has clearly stated which kingdom must have our allegiance as believers. And that's also why this current kingdom that we're in right now is so grievous, folks. You can't look at the paper and the media without being grieved. It's why we should be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is earth as it is in heaven. It's why we saw John. We saw John, the same man here, over in chapter 5. He was weeping in chapter 5 because he was afraid that no one was ever going to step forward and overthrow the kingdom. Remember? All heaven was waiting for the Lamb to step forward and take the book and begin to unseal it. But there for a minute, it, it wasn't happening. And John, the Bible says, I wept. Well, church, rest assured that this old kingdom of this world we see right now is not going to last forever. There's a new one approaching. Praise God. And when this seventh trumpet sounds, we finally hear the declaration of what every Bible believer has longed for and prayed for. And that is the statement we read. The kingdoms of this world 
are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And how many know we should know that that is with absolute certainty? Even in the day when the world rebels the hardest and takes its strongest measures against the will of God, how many know God's not worried about that in the least? He really isn't. When schools cancel prayer, when judges legalize gay marriage, when scientists promote evolution, when governments censor evangelism, Psalms 2.4 says, He that setteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord scoffs at them, folks. Their attempts are as ineffective as Pilate putting that seal on the tomb of Jesus. It didn't work. I said it didn't work. God has already decreed that there's a day coming in which the kingdom of this world is going to fall and Christ will reign supreme. And verse 15 says he's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And when Christ begins to reign, how many know he's not going to relinquish his throne? Hmm? Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of his government, peace. There shall be no end. Daniel 2, 44, The God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Luke 1, the angel tells Mary that her son would reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. Somebody say eternal. Somebody say eternal. The new kingdom is coming, and when it comes, it will never end. Adrian Rogers, pastor to church there, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, many years, have a couple of his books. He said this, he said, people ask me all the time, pastor, what's this world coming to? He said, I tell them what it's coming to. He said, it's coming to Jesus. Because it was made by him, it was made for him, and the Bible says it's going to come back to him. The kingdoms of this world is going to become the kingdoms of our God. I like that. That's exactly what we see here in Revelation 11, the last few verses. It's the declaration of God's reign. Number two on your handout, the description now of Christ's reign. Because the fact of God's reign is a certainty. What does it mean, though? Many folks today, when we elect a new president, ask questions like they did several months ago after the election. What will a Biden America look like by the time he leaves office? Hmm. Well, how many knows that remains to be seen? But I can tell you what a Jesus kingdom is going to look like in this world. Let's look at it. Number one, it will mean glory to God. Listen to heaven here as they once again proclaim in verse 17, you are, you were, now we see that you always will be. Basically, they say you've always had the power to do anything you've desired You've always had the power to bring all things under your control. You have always had the power to bring all the rebels to submission. And today you've finally done it. Thank you, God. That's what the church is saying. The reign of Christ means glory to God. 
Philippians 2, uh, 2.11, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. On this day, God will no longer be scorned or rejected or ignored. He will be glorified. Amen. It will mean glory for God. Secondly, notice on your study guide, it will mean defeat for the enemy. It says, and the nations were angry, but it says, thy wrath is come. Here we find that when Christ did come to reign, how many know in the New Testament, the leaders were enraged at him. They sought to keep him from reigning. In fact, that's why they killed him. Death on the cross. The nations are enraged at God and Christ. But what you see in the text is that does not even, that's not even a blip on the radar. It absolutely has no significance. The answer is given in, in five little words from verse 18, and thy wrath is come. That's what you've got to worry about, world. Hey, nation, God's wrath is the one you better be worried about. And, of course, this refers to the wrath of the tribulation, whereby we have seen God exterminate sinners. They've rebelled against God, but they will not succeed. Christ will reign, and his enemies, regardless of how angry they are, will not survive. Because on the cross, Christ redeemed the world. All that's left now is to evict the rebels and repo the planet but we shouldn't expect a concession speech from the opposing side because they're not doing it. They're angry. That's what verse 18 says. The nations are angry. Listen, today we see people repeatedly, repeatedly rejecting the truths of Scripture, rejecting the commands of, of God. They read what the Bible says and then defiantly reject it, in effect telling God, leave me alone. You're not the boss of me. Listen, here's man's problem in a nutshell. People don't like to be told what they need to do, right? They get angry. But man's wrath won't stop God's wrath. In verse 18, the reign of Christ means glory for God. It means the defeat of the enemy. Thirdly, it means judgment for sinners. In the time of the dead, they shall be judged. Notice that phrase, verse 18. You know, how many has ever heard the term, don't judge me? You know, this world can cry, judge not all they want, but that will not stop God from judging them. Every person will give an account for his deeds, right? Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto men once to die, but what after that? There's that word, judgment. How many know it's no secret that the world hates judgment? The world hates to have their sin exposed. The world hates to have their sin confronted. The world hates to have their sin rebuked. But it doesn't matter because when Christ reigns, it means judgment for all sinners. Number four, it will mean reward for the righteous. But thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints and to them that fear thy name, small and great. Today, how many know the righteous folks 
we press on amidst the toil and the conflict in our culture because the kingdom of this world is, is it can be hard on those who are faithful to Christ, right? But on the day that Christ reigns, all those who remain faithful will be rewarded. Somebody say it will be worth it all. Why? Because for the first time in the history of the world, we will have a just king. Somebody say what a glorious day that will be. No more will sin be accepted. No more will sin be celebrated. No more will sin be tolerated. No more will righteousness be scorned. No more will faithfulness be attacked. When Christ reigns, sinners are judged. The righteous are rewarded. Praise God. Number five, it will mean the destruction of the wicked. Notice last part of verse 18, and destroy them which destroy the earth. Right here, guess what? We find that God is an environmentalist, but not the way you think of that today. He's not referring to those who use hairspray or burn up tires or styrofoam cups. God's referring to those who have corrupted the world through their sin. Hmm? How many know it wasn't hairspray that wrecked God's creation? It was sin. If it is sinners who continue to corrupt God's creation, you know, to you know what the biggest pollutant, according to the Bible, is on the earth, according to God? If you read Numbers 31, you'll find blood. He says, it's the blood that defileth the land. How many know? Listen, folks. A pro-choice environmentalist is an oxymoron. But when Christ reigns, not only will they be judged, they will be destroyed so that they can never hurt this earth or its inhabitants again. That's what the text says. Isaiah foretold of this in 11.9. He says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will be glorified. The enemy will be defeated. Say, Sinners will be judged, the righteous will be rewarded, and the wicked will be destroyed. And because the time has come, heaven, in the text, is absolutely rejoicing. The declaration of Christ's reign, the description of Christ's reign, jumping back out in our outline, number three, the demonstration of Christ's reign. There's an interesting scene now going on in verse 19. In particular, it is very Jewish in its feel. It deals with temples and Ark of the Covenant. and What it is, and I believe this is on your study guide, it's the tale of two temples. Because in the temple on earth, there's chaos and carnage while all is in order in heaven's temple. Huh? We've seen how the earth has rebuffed God's last-ditch duo. We talked about them last week. Now the die is cast. How many know God's love is forever, but not his pardon? Did you get that? God's love is forever, but not his pardon. In other words, you reject him long enough, he will honor your decision. 
you're not familiar now as we look at this scene with the Ark of the Covenant, let me remind you it was an important piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple. It became synonymous with the presence of God and even the glory of God. Many times in the Old Testament, Isaiah would, excuse me, Israel would take the ark with them wherever they went, signifying the presence of God in their endeavors. It also became a lasting symbol. And here's the point I need, uh, we need to draw on for this. It became a lasting symbol of God's faithfulness. Because inside the ark, somebody tell me the three things that it had. What was it? Ten commandments, jar of manna, and what else? Aaron's rod that budded. So we have the Ten Commandments representing the law of God. We have the jar of manna representing the provision of God. We have the staff, Aaron's staff, representing the sovereign rule of God through his appointed leaders. Now, this ark then not only represented God's presence, but his faithful working with Israel through the years and through really the dispensations. I think it's interesting that it appears now in this text, we're already, we've already discussed that the primary purpose of the tribulation is going to be the salvation of Israel. Well, on this day when Christ begins to reign, God allows Israel now to see, although they have broken their covenant, they have lost their Ark of the Covenant, right? God is saying, I've still got mine. I've never lost mine. You may, Israel, you may have broken my law. You may have forgotten about my provision. You have may rejected my appointed leaders. But I've been faithful on my end. Hasn't he been faithful? They were faithless. But God has remained faithful. Certainly after they killed their Messiah... They had no grounds to ever, ever expect that he would still one day come and reign. But he will. Hello? Why? Because God remains faithful to his promises. Now, in the final verses, it says, there's lightnings, voices, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. What we have here is a snapshot or a preview of what is to come at the final end. We know that after blast, the blasting of this seventh trumpet, there's going to be seven bowls of wrath. It's going to be poured out. We have yet to talk about them. But yet we get a quick description of the final bowl of wrath. If you go forward to Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, the final wrath is lightning, thunder, earthquake, and a hailstorm. So here we have a taste of what God's judgment will feel like on the earth at the very, very last. When heaven announced that Christ would reign, the earth instantly gets a little taste of what that final act of judgment will feel like. So the reality for the earth is this. There is no chance that the kingdom of this world is going to survive. When God gets done, hello, 
Christ is going to reign. God has already decreed it, and he will reign in perfect justice. There is no future in resisting the reign of Christ in your life. Amen. So that moves us now to close and in conclusion, though I want us to go back to verse 16. What you and I will do as a result of the angel's song, as we mentioned during the text, the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God, that's us, the church, we fall on our faces and we worship. Because we've already been raptured, we're safely in heaven, apart from and away from this day of wrath on earth, you find one minute in this text, the elders are sitting on their thrones. The next minute, they are down on their faces, worshiping God. Their response is ecstatic, it's spontaneous, it's pure praise. That is what true worship, church, is really all about, right? Whether we are singing, whether we are praying, whether we are studying, whether we are testifying or serving, it is all worship as we recognize the greatness of our God and as we play the part of a willing servant to his majesty, his will for our lives. Amen. Sister John June, come. You remember the name George Handel? George Handel communicated this sense well in his great work we call Handel's Messiah. He had recently suffered a stroke, history says, which had paralyzed the left side of his face, calling, causing him intense pain. He said most days, Handel could barely afford his rent, barely afford food to eat. His health was broken. He had become very discouraged, unsure about the future, anxious about the future. And one night, a friend of his gives him a folder filled with verses of Scripture attempting to encourage Handel. His friend said later that he was trying to encourage him to take the verses of Scripture that he had clipped out and put in that folder and, and use those verses to compose a new work. The verses were simply referring to the prophecies about Christ and the Messiah. George looked at them over and over, but he said that night he tossed them aside as he crawled into bed, but he couldn't sleep. He got up, he went to the piano, he began to write. Handel was left-handed, and because of his recent stroke, his notes and his scripts were poorly written, but he carried on. For three weeks, in fact, he hardly stopped, he said, to eat or to sleep or to entertain any visitors. Finally, after 22 days of solitude, a friend <coughs> makes it inside Handel's apartment and found Handel at his piano. He said, sheets of music strewn everywhere. And George looked at his friend with tears streaming down his face. And this is what he said to his friend. He said, I do believe that I have seen 
all of heaven before me and the greatness of God himself. And in 1741, when, when the Messiah was first performed in London, they arrived at the Hallelujah Course. England's King George removed his crown, stood up, because in their culture, one never sat in the presence of a superior. Don't you think about that? And thus the tradition of standing at the Hallelujah Chorus began. In the text Handel chose, there is the singing of angels who rehearsed the greatness of the sovereign and the singularity of his kingdom and the certainty of his reign. Right here, what we've been talking about. And the church is represented by the elders. We cannot sit, and in fact, we fall down before the throne to worship the that's powerful. God is revealing to us what the rest of the story looks like. This is a, a what we call it a panoramic view as the vault of heaven is open. Listen, sinners are enraged and judged. That's tragic. The nation is regathered. That's surprising. Saints are rewarded. That's the grace of God. The kingdom is come. That's the glory of God. Somebody raise your hands and say, it's not going to be this way forever. Praise God. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And he shall reign. Somebody say, he's going to reign. I said, he's going to reign. Forever, and ever, and ever. Stand with me. All hail King Jesus. All hail Emmanuel. King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star. Why? Because the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our God. I plan to be there, don't you? I plan to be with those elders. I plan to be around the throne. And I plan to be worshiping Him. Amen? All hail King Jesus. Oh, sing it, church. Bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Don't forget Friday night. Join us. Hey. 